Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Yes. And just wanted to lay out the order of the day as a starting point. Um, we'll have Congressman Gallagher um, joining us virtually, as I said before. Unfortunately, due to a roll, roll call vote, he just can't be here in person today. We'll do some Q&A with him, and then we'll turn it over to a panel. I really want to thank you, such a, a really good audience, being here today. Um, this event is obviously focusing today on abuses in Xinjiang, with a focus particularly on technology there and surveillance, and also what that could mean for the rest of the world. We will be holding more events on this topic at CSIS, and our goal is really to highlight potential policy opportunities to both improve the situation in Xinjiang and also make sure that some of these abuses there never become a new normal for the rest of the world. So with us today, we have Congressman Mike Gallagher. He was elected in 2016. He represents Wisconsin's 8th District in the House of Representatives. He earned his bachelor's degree from Princeton and then immediately joined the US Marine Corps. He was actually on active duty for seven years, primarily um, in counterintelligence. He also served on the Republican staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, he squeezed in several master's degrees and a PhD in international relations from Georgetown, which makes me feel pretty um, lazy. Uh, he has written actually extensively about China and the China-US relationship, both from a national security perspective and from more of a values-based human rights perspective. So I'm really looking forward to what he has to say today. And on that note, I'm going to hand it over to him and let's hope the technology works. Congressman, to you. All right, can you guys hear me over there? Yes. Okay, uh, well, first of all, my profound apologies uh, with this. Um, the only problem with being in Congress is that occasionally you have to vote from time to time. And uh, today we have a unusually chaotic vote situation with the House squabbling with the Senate over border appropriations. And we were supposed to be done by about 11 a.m. today. And now there is no end in sight. And so at any given moment, you could hear a, a buzzing or a beeping, and that is not uh, Chinese surveillance technology. That is the House uh, uh, notification system that will require me to sprint to the floor and vote. So uh, I, I know you guys put a lot of effort into this event, and I spent a lot of time gathering my thoughts. And so I just really apologize for not being there in person. Um, but I'm glad we're able to do this, even as suboptimal as it is. So. Uh, I guess your first question should be is, you know, what the heck does this guy know about uh, Asia in general and China in particular? I spent the last uh, 15 years of my life as an Arabist uh, and focused on the Middle East, but I now found myself primarily focused on the Indo-Pacific region um, and the Eurasian Rimland in particular. And that's where most of my focus on the Armed Services Committee and as chair of the Cyber Solarium Commission are, because that right now we're trying to effectuate this very complicated shift that is contained within the national security strategy and national defense strategy uh, away from prioritizing counterterrorism mission and towards prioritizing uh, great power competition with China in particular. And that strikes me as the most important shift that's going on in the national security community right now. And I view part of my job in the Armed Services Committee uh, to make the military ready to implement that shift. Um, and furthermore, uh, I did, uh, though it took me a long time, read Mike Green's book by More Than Providence, and I underlined it a lot and I highlighted it a lot. So what little I know about Asia, I learned from that. And so 
it now serves as a, a, a paperweight and a door stopper uh, in my office back in Wisconsin because it's so voluminous. And so, Mike, I have to thank you and thank all of CSI as a scholar for that. And in Mike's book, he has this point where he talks about how Americans have for centuries hoped that the Pacific would serve as, quote, a conduit for American ideas and goods to flow westward. But as Mike notes, some of that westward flow of ideas included missionaries who traveled to the Far East to spread the cross, the projection of our ideas and our values. Uh, but that was not always purely altruistic. Rather, American statesmen, especially in the Pacific, have for generations understood the connection between our values and our security. Just as we wanted our ideas to flow west, as Mike puts it, we wanted to prevent threats from flowing eastward towards the homeland. And all you have to do is open the 2017 National Security Strategy to realize this is a concept that still resonates today. And since you're at a Washington think tank event, I think we are contractually obligated to name check great power competition as, as many times as humanly possible. But lost in the focus over the security and economic domains of that competition that's in the NSS and the NDS is its perception, and this is in the national security strategy, that we are in a, quote, fundamentally political contest between those who favor repressive systems and those who favor free societies. So think about that. Fundamentally political contest. Just despite all the debate over material factors like building a 355-ship Navy, making sure the future of 5G isn't dominated by the Chinese Communist Party, trade, our competition on all these other fronts, notwithstanding that, the competition is still fundamentally a political one. And I think this is a concept that would have been familiar to many of our Cold War statesmen in general, and Ronald Reagan in particular, who national, whose National Security Decision Directed 70, Directive 75 set forth a plan not just to coexist with the Soviet Union, but to change it. As that document laid out, U.S. policy must have an ideological thrust, which clearly affirms the superiority of U.S. and Western values of individual dignity and freedom, a free press, free trade unions, free enterprise, and political democracy over the repressive features of Soviet communism. An ideological thrust which clearly affirms the superiority of U.S. and Western values. I think that's a stunning statement in the present day. I mean, 40 years later, much the same could be said about the Chinese Communist Party and its oppression. Focus the relationship solely on security and economic concerns. I believe we are not going to succeed. You can see this in the Huawei campaign playing out today. It's hard to imagine how many more red flags we can raise about security vulnerabilities. But the reality is that many of our friends, even close friends, are going to make decisions based on Huawei's highly subsidized prices, regardless of the evidence in front of them. But I suspect human rights are a even more fertile ground on which to engage our friends. There's a reason the CCP, for example, is so desperate to take human rights off the table. Look uh, at, at the PRC officials arrogantly declaring that they will not allow the G20 to discuss Hong Kong. They're terrified of being embarrassed in a global forum, as they should be. Again, human rights are a universal language that threatens their legitimacy at home and abroad. So what can we do? Well, a few things from a congressional perspective. First, I believe we need to elevate human rights to be a co-equal third pillar of our bilateral relationship. Again, going back to the Reagan administration, examine the archives, for example, with George Shultz preparing Reagan for his fourth summit in 1988, where he had the famous Moscow State speech. 
he lays out all the issues to bring up. And of course, there's bilateral uh, concerns. There's regional issues like getting out of Afghanistan, arms control. But the first item he urges him to bring up is human rights concerns, knowing full well that Gorbachev will object and talk about all the contradictions in our system, et cetera. But he urges him to reject the moral equivalency and bring it up nonetheless. Um, I think we should take advantage of every opportunity, beginning at the G20, to, at the highest levels, draw attention to human rights abuses um, in Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and throughout China. I think this should be a relentless part of our dialogue. I think another leverage point is the 2020 Winter Olympics. Uh, as host, the Chinese government has pledged that it would abide by the Olympic Charter and, quote, prohibit any form of discrimination based on religion and ethnicity. It's clearly failing to live up to that standard. I think it's not unreasonable to ask whether the U.S. should participate in a spectacle that invariably will hand, invariably will hand the party a public relations coup. At a minimum, I think we should press the CCP to end ethnic cleansing programs that are resettling Uyghur areas with Han Chinese. And we should present lists of religious prisoners and demand their release. And we should push for the rights of all those languishing in Xinjiang's concentration camps to go home. Um, second, I think we need to cut off American technology that is enabling China's techno-totalitarianism. My colleague, a Democrat from Illinois, uh, so not only a Democrat, but a Bears fan, if you can believe it, we see eye to eye on this issue, has a great piece of bipartisan legislation called the Uyghur Act, which prohibits federal procurement from entities that contribute to arbitrary detention in Xinjiang and calls for Magnitsky sanctions against officials responsible. And more broadly, I think we need to understand that to the CCP, there really is no distinction between civil and military programs. It's all part of comprehensive national power and advanced American technologies that make their way to China at best contribute to further repression and surveillance. And at worst, they may be used against our own service members and our allies one day on the field of battle. And that's why just yesterday I introduced a piece of legislation with my colleague Mark Green, to control the export of national interest technology to China, including technology and intellectual property that could be used by the CCP to violate human rights or expand its military capabilities. And then third and finally, and perhaps most importantly, I think we need to differentiate, and this is difficult uh, at times in terms of how we talk about this, between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. We don't have a China problem, we have a CCP problem. The Chinese people, and especially the Uyghurs of Xinjiang, are its primary victim, and I think we need to relentlessly message that we are on their side against their oppressors and live that commitment through our own actions here in the United States. The thing about totalitarian governments is, uh, if you look back, I, I think they are less stable than they appear, and that, um, as Reagan said in Westminster in 82, uh, regimes planted by bayonet do not take root. Um, and while it may be too much to hope for you know, a, a version of a, a Berlin 1989 moment in the immediate future, I think we're at the beginning of a long-term competition with China. It is both in our interest and our tradition to bring that day just a little bit closer and bring a peaceful world more closer. And so with that, I will stop talking. Uh, I, again, uh, thank you for understanding for me having to beam myself in technologically. And if I I'm not watching like sports behind me. That's the house floor. So I'm just awaiting when the the buzzers are going to go off on it, and I have to run. Yes. Uh, so you have my full attention until that moment, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. So thank you so much, Congressman Gallagher. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions of you. I think it's going to be a little hard to open it up to the room. Unfortunately, my understanding is there are some technological barriers to that potentially. Um, so we'll see where we get, and also when your buzzer goes off. Um, so, 
So you talked, I mean, thank you for covering so much territory um, really eloquently around the many challenges in the relationship and, and again, the important of, importance of values when we think about um, authoritarian states like China. You talked briefly about allies. So how could we be better engaging our allies as we try to combat authoritarianism around the world? What could that mean in practice? Well, I was at the Munich Security Conference uh, a few months ago, and I was struck by this moment when Vice President Pence gave what I thought to be a very powerful speech. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this line as I try and paraphrase it. But he said something to the effect of, you know, we cannot ensure the defense of the West if our allies are dependent on the East. And basically, he's talking about dependent on Chinese technology, uh, particularly the future of, of 5G. That is a buzzer, but I have some time where we can, well, I think I'll at least have 10 minutes left. Um, uh, but it, I think in that room, even a message as powerful as that, as that fell a little bit flat because clearly our allies are concerned about some of the other rhetoric that we've seen in recent years, whether it's rhetoric surrounding the utility of NATO or some of the ways in which we've tried to convince them to spend more on their defense, which is is not a, a a new argument. And so I really do think the type of diplomacy we, we engage with matters. And I think for people like me in public office, we've really taken for granted this idea that uh, the American people are going to under, are, are going to um, appreciate arguments about alliances and the rules-based global order. I think we need to do a better job of talking about why, if we don't want to do everything ourselves, we need to be in the constant business of building and maintaining our alliances, our partnerships, and our friendships around the world. And we're failing at that. Uh, and on a practical level, um, how, do we, how do we operationalize that? Well, you've actually seen Congress, in many cases, pushing back on any suggestion that we're about to abandon our, our treaty allies. Uh, Jimmy Panetta had a bill, for example, at the beginning of this Congress, reaffirming our support to NATO and preventing anyone in the executive branch from unilaterally trying to challenge our commitment to NATO. Similarly, I had pieces of legislation with Tom Malinowski that would not require, uh, would not allow us to withdraw um, troops past a certain number on the Korean Peninsula. So Congress really needs to rediscover its role in foreign policy. I think we've had too much deference to the executive branch in recent years. And to have more of a struggle between Article 1 and Article 2, I think would send a healthy signal, not a, not a weaker one, to our allies around the world, if that makes sense. The final thing I'd say on this, there was a Chinese academic, I forget his name, who wrote an op-ed, I think, in 2011 in the New York Times, I want to say. And he said, the core of competition between the United States and China will come down to who has better friends. Uh, I agree with that then, and I agree with that even more uh, today. So I guess that's a long-winded way of me saying rhetoric matters and Congress should matter more than it does. So much for making those points. You know, actually, we're about to put out a compendium um, from different scholars around the center talking about how Congress can be more active on human rights and why we think it's so important that Congress take up that mantle that it's done before. Um, so uh, thanks for queuing up my opportunity to talk about that. Uh, that should be, com be coming out in the next few weeks. Um, Fantastic. And uh, I, I think your points about strengthening our alliances in various ways is really, really important, obviously. Um, and that's, I think, with our European alliances, but also obviously with countries in Asia that are much more directly affected by what's happening. Um, one of the issues you discussed was the role of technology companies and 
and the role of technology generally, right? That, that in a way, the kind of technology that's employed in the world and depending on its origin may affect national security, but also from my perspective, have a profound effect on human rights. So what should we be asking, let's say, of our technology companies? Well, morally, I think this is an interesting issue for the heads of all of our leading uh, technology companies to consider. I mean, Silicon Valley is famous for its woke culture, uh, and I think it's worth pushing them to expand the definition of corporate social responsibility to include not partnering with techno-totalitarian states uh, like China that are going to use those technologies for nefarious purposes. I think in the wake of the Project Maven scandal, we've actually come to a little bit of a better place in terms of our technology companies being willing to work with the Pentagon. But that cultural divide between Silicon Valley and our own government is really what worries me more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, you know, we can't, how do I put this? Um, we can't do sort of what, in order to win this competition, we, we can't do what the Chinese Communist Party can do, right? In other words, we can't sort of force our best and brightest and conscript them into the PLA cyber force, right? I mean, it's, it's just not going to happen, nor would we want to go down that road, right? It, the sort of uh, open, free society we have, the entrepreneurial society we have is a feature, not a bug of our system, but it's dependent upon the patriotic impulses of the employees in those companies and certainly the leadership to really recognize that, listen, I get it, America is not perfect, right? We are having brutal debates right now on the House floor about uh, border security, and we are constantly, you know, uh, going back and forth over critical issues. But to paraphrase General Dunford or General Mattis, it was one of the Marines, I can't remember. Um, you know, we may not be the perfect guys, but we are the good guys at the end of the day. And I think rediscovering the, dare I say to, to still Reagan's phrase, the moral superiority of Western values uh, is a key first step, right? If indeed it's a competition between free societies and more repressive societies, then the worst thing we could do, or the easiest way we could lose that competition is to not be a free society anymore. So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but it's a huge, it's a huge cultural challenge that I, I struggle to find an easy legislative solution to. I just want to tease that out a little bit. Um, I think when we talk about Western values, actually what's interesting to me is if you really look at how human rights were developed, yes, Eleanor Roosevelt played a really key role in that, but also China and Russia, for example, played key roles in that as well. And I've lived in Asia, I lived in Southeast Asia for several years, and I do think these values are universal. So I don't think they're just Western. I think it's just we're seeing different governments that either do or do not allow them to flourish. So I would just make that slight distinction um, because we certainly have Asian democracies. I'm on board with that. So. Um, I think um, some of your points about technology companies are interesting. They're interesting from my perspective. I helped write something called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And most of those large technology companies at least have signed up to those principles. So in theory, they should already be thinking about their human rights impacts of their products and designing them in ways to minimize those, those adverse impacts. Um, how about, so here's another question, how to, in terms of leading by example, which I always think is really important as we think about the global normative framework for technology use, do we need to be doing more here at home in terms of how do we deal with facial recognition technology, gate recognition technology? How do we make sure the global standards around that are consistent with democratic norms? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. I tend to think we are at the beginning of that debate here in Congress. Uh, maybe not specifically about facial recognition technology, but you're, you're starting to see this very public um, 
debate between our tech companies and legislators, particularly legislators uh, that are from a younger generation, some of the new senators, Josh Hawley in particular, uh, who sort of understand how <laughs> Facebook actually works in contrast to some of their colleagues, um, and really having this, this tough debate over uh, how, we sh how or if we should regulate these companies, should we treat them as content providers, and by extension, how we should treat technology uh, more broadly. Um, I don't know where that debate is going to wind up, but I think it's a really, really healthy one that's happening right now. It may not seem that way, but I think it's we actually have some really smart people in the Senate and in the House that are trying to wrap their heads around this issue and the way in which technology has pervaded uh, all of our daily lives. I mean, to some extent, this tension between um, security and liberty has always been there throughout our country's history, and it's not easy to sort of get the balance entirely right. But I actually think the debate has been healthier here in Congress than people realize, notwithstanding some hearings in the last year that may have seemed embarrassing uh, or outdated, let me say, but we're getting there. Uh, as Winston Churchill said about America, he could have been talking about Congress in particular. We can always be counted on to do the right thing after we've exhausted all the other alternatives. Um, but uh, but uh, beyond that, I, I think the easiest thing we could do right now as I alluded to before, is to ensure that none of our technologies, which are critical components in many cases of technologies that China, that, that Huawei and ZTE rely upon, are exported for nefarious purposes. And then the second piece of that is to build a domestic industry for certain things like, what would be a good example, drone technology, right? I mean, how much of the market does DJI right now dominate and we just don't have a domestic drone market that's a huge problem right if you sort of believe that dji technology cannot be mitigated in the same way that i believe huawei technology can't be mitigated well if it's it's step one to try and block that technology from infiltrating our marketplace but step two needs you need to have alternatives because the military needs drones there's commercial drones that people are going to buy that have enormous vulnerabilities and I think our defense industrial base and our defense innovation base have become so hollowed out in the last two decades that really we need to attack this more robustly. It's, for, it's a reason, for example, why I supported and had a piece of legislation in the last Congress. I stole an idea from DIUX, Michael Brown and Raj Shah, which created a national security innovation capital fund where DOD in partnership with private capital could invest in hardware technology. Right. Because we become so enamored with software that sometimes we neglected the hardware. So there's a lot of different things we have to uh, we have to do. So I don't know if any of that made sense, but I'm like nervous looking at Jordan's going to tell me when I have to. Everything vote, OK. So. OK. We, have yeah, everything's more, we got a few more minutes. Yeah. OK. We um, solved the immigration crisis, everybody. I'm, I'm, it's, don't, don't, no, no need to worry anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, going to some of your points earlier, I think there often is a tension between sort of the security and human rights communities. But I also think when we look at what's happening in China right now, there's actually some really interesting commonalities. Uh, and I think just continuing to have those conversations and, and work towards the right result, whether it's in terms of development of industry at home or abroad, is, is really, really vital. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier, um, and it's something I think about a lot, which is you talked a little bit about the fact that maybe we haven't really made the case to, you know, this is, we're in a policy room of policy nerds, but, um, but to like, I'm from Oklahoma originally, right? People I know from home. The, the importance of alliances, the importance of values. So how do we sort of reinvigorate that domestic constituency for this? Do you have any thoughts on that? I know this is well outside of well, China, yeah. but. 
No, 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 no. It's it's a it's a huge problem. Um, you know, politically, one of the things that confounds me the most is how often I get asked by people in my district about you know why do we continue to spend money on development? Why why are we funding the State Department? You know, if only we stopped giving money to countries that hate us, we could balance the federal budget. Now, even the quickest Google search and the most rudimentary calculator will tell you that that is absurd. And so we have to make the case for why these programs that have a link uh, with, uh, with, with or that are ways in which we advance our human rights arguments are critical, right? And then I think we need to take advantage of opportunities where, as I mentioned in my opening comments, our human rights interests sort of coincide with our strategic interests, right? In which they sort of push in the same direction. Of course, there are going to be cases. I mean, I spent most of my life working on Middle East issues, and oftentimes you have to make terrible compromises between, or you have to work with partners that don't share our, our values, right? Or you have to adopt the bear hug approach where you work so closely with them, you're able to constrain their worst impulses and prevent a worse outcome. But I think when it comes to China, we actually don't have to make this this choice right now. We don't have to make uh, any compromises. And that's true of certain other countries around the world, Russia, would be the most obvious. Um, so part of it's just how we talk about it politically, um, how we talk about it in ways that, you know, it could be understood at Lambeau Field uh, over, you know, the course of a football game. Um, and, um, uh, you know, part of it's just our, our willingness here in Congress to fund the programs and the mechanisms through which we advance human rights. Um, and uh, it's just crazy to me that every two years, the State Department and USAID seem to be on the chopping block. Now, I think organizations like USGLC have done a fantastic job in bringing high-level former military leaders on board to talk to the American people about how investments in these non-military instruments of national power actually save us money over time and reduce the likelihood that we have to use guns, bombs, ships, uh, and airplanes. Uh, Mattis was quite uh, eloquent on that subject, um, but still, that's a that's an argument that we continually have to to have. I mean, it's not it's not a new argument, right? I mean, it goes. It's you see it, you saw it throughout the Cold War. You see it throughout our country's history. So uh, we just have to be vigilant. Well, thank you, and thank you very much. I think we now actually do need to turn to the panel, and I know you're going to have to go vote in a moment. But I just really want to thank you, yeah. and can we please please give Congressman Gallagher some applause? Well, again, my sincere apologies. Uh, you know how these things work is they, they tell you you're going to vote at 11 and then it's 11.15 and then it continually goes. And so they keep you on standby. Um, so I apologize, guys. It's Congress. We're at an 11% approval rating and we seem to be doing our best to get below into single digits. So I appreciate your patience <laughs> and I look forward to apologizing to all of you in person. Doing, but thank you for the work you're doing, and I'm eager to get the uh, to watch the video of the panel later. And, and just thank you for all the great work that CSIS does. You guys are phenomenal. And with that, I'll let you go. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye. Yep. So thank you very much. And uh, I know that was a bit of an adventure. Is my lapel mic, mic working? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, we're going to now basically uh, turn to a different part of the program. Um, I'm going to give a quick presentation just to uh, give some basic background and also let you know what we've been working on here at CSIS as it relates to Xinjiang and where we, we may be going. Um, so thank you for bearing with me during this. Can we get, okay, the slides are up, all right. Um, 
So this is just a slide of headlines related to the Uyghurs, and most of these will be familiar to the people in the room who are probably paying attention to this. And it, they relate to mass surveillance, mass incarceration, and also more recently, allegations of forced labor. And I think it's important to bear in mind when we look at Xinjiang that it turns out re-education efforts began in 2013 from what we can learn from public procurement documents and elsewhere. And they just became a lot worse around 2017. And before that, there were other forms of significant cultural and religious repression in Xinjiang. So this is not a new problem. And what I actually think is quite remarkable is how little has been done from a policy perspective. Right? There are bills in Congress, but like little has actually happened. And it's quite extraordinary given given the circumstances there and the extremity of what's occurring. I don't know if that's partly because we feel like it's not relevant for us here in the US, but I think it is, and part of our goal at CSIS is to make that clear, and I hope today's panel helps with that. Um, can we go to the next slide? Oh, actually, let's see, I have the clicker, huh. Um, so this is a map of suspected detention facilities in Xinjiang. It's the most complete uh, map I've seen. We're using data from a researcher in Canada named Sean Zhang. All of his data is public, um, if you want to look at it yourself. And, and this is basically, he pulled together a lot of public procurement documents and other documents um, that he's able to review in Mandarin and combined it with uh, satellite imagery to, to make these, uh, to, to identify these, these sites. And what I think is actually interesting about this map is how underrepresentative it is of the actual problem. So that may look like a lot of red, those are 95 sites, but kind of a back of the envelope estimate based, if we take the assumption of a million people being in detention rather than, let's say, the more recent numbers around 3 million from the Pentagon. If we take a million, we average out what we know from public procurement documents about the number of people in these facilities. This is maybe, maybe, possibly, at the most, probably 8% of the total. So multiply that by more than 10. Like Xinjiang should be buried in red from these detention facilities. And in terms of numbers, I think um, the congressman covered that, right? But like at minimum, it's 10% of the Uyghur and um, Turkic Muslim population there. And I should add, I'm probably gonna say Uyghur, but there are also Cossacks and other groups that are Muslim that are also being incarcerated and abused. But when we look at this map, the other thing to bear in mind is that the people who aren't actually in detention aren't free either. Um, and that's where the title of this event came from, right? Like prisons by another name or another kind of prison. It's really the idea that, that first of all, people are in house detention and we don't know how many people that is. Um, but also they're, as we know, right, monitored every, every few blocks, the checkpoints, they're physically surveilled and then technologically surveilled. And I think um, the export of that technological surveillance should really concern all of us, which is why we're focusing on that today. This is a, a map of the known, the known facilities in Hotan Prefecture. There should be, I think it's 14 here, but they're kind of on top of each other, so you can't see a lot. Um, we, and, and when you think about these detention facilities, again, what we know, and it's hard to get a lot of information, both because not a lot of people get out of them, um, and because we're really relying on a lot of like public procurement documents and so forth, but what we know is there's, there are different kinds of facilities, and so it's a complex picture. Some of them are former schools or, um, or prisons. Some of them are custom built for this purpose. And they seem to have different levels of severity in terms of physical, co physical abuse. Um, all of them have psychological coercion, right? That's basically what re-education is, right? Trying to eliminate a culture and religion through re-education. Um, so, uh, 
so we're not talking about like a monolithic um, type of facility or experience. We wanted to look at this particular facility because there's actually quite a bit known about it. Actually, I'm going to turn and look at uh, their slides in different places. I'm looking over here. Um, so we know that there are allegations of forced labor con connected to this particular one, and that's something we think we'll be focusing on in future work because it's something we could actually do something about here in the US. Uh, this is obviously just desert in 2012. Uh, this is an image from 2019, and this is an integrated facility that's the size of about 88 soccer fields. So this is really, really big. And we don't know how big all these custom-built facilities are, but uh, we know, for example, from public, public procurement documents that some of them have grocery stores in them, which are probably for people working there and suggest to you the size and scale of this effort, which maybe doesn't make a lot of sense at first blush. Why build these facilities in the middle of the desert with a very low-density population on the edges of a country? But if you think about the Belt and Road Initiative and the fact that a lot of the transportation and pipelines and so forth through that for that, they go through Xinjiang to get to Central Asia. It's actually a critical area. And so in that sense, the crackdown and, and the um, expenditure start to make a bit more sense. Just briefly, this is from later in 2012 when this facility is starting to be built. You can see, um, you can see actually, if you could see the northern part of it, there's this road network that, that really kind of encapsulates the entire facility and runs through it. You can see building in multiple locations that, again, suggests the whole thing was planned at once. Um, so this was planned and implemented over seven, eight years, probably. This is a more recent image, and I think there's a couple interesting points with this. One is that you can see it's not like a normal industrial facility for a few reasons. One is you can see maybe here are some little shadows, they're antennae um, from advanced communications um, capacities. We think this is probably a security and communications center. If this were just a normal factory, for example, you wouldn't need that, right? It's, it's, too, it's for security. You can also maybe see a little bit, there's fences both here in the middle and then all the way around the outside that are 16 feet high is our estimate. Um, from the imagery we've been able to obtain. So again, if people are here willingly and happily, you don't need 16 foot high fences. On that note, um, I wanna turn to the northern part of this. So what we know from this facility, the way that we know it is really interesting. Um, Chinese television, the official state TV, actually did a 15 minute segment on this on this particular re-education facility and about how lucky and happy the Uyghurs there were to be learning new skills and be part of a modern workforce, basically. Um, and they talked about a particular company that was employing these detainees. And they named the company. And the AP then did some research and figured out that that particular company was shipping to the US and their, the address it was shipped from was the same address as this detention center. So we think there's a pretty, you know, I think the common understanding is this is probably that company's factory. Um, I don't believe anyone's been able to interview a specific person who was in that factory, but from, I mean, just again, look at the facility. I'll, I'm gonna actually go to the next slide. You can see the fences here. So this is a 16-foot fence. That's solid down here, and then that's a wire fence up here. If people are there willingly, happily working in your factory, you don't need fences like this, right? So definitely appearances of forced labor, and that's 
consistent with increased reporting on this topic in terms of detainees who are able to escape or their families saying that this is, seems to be a growing problem, but we don't really understand the scale of it yet. This is a different facility in Yaning, and it's, it looks pretty benign. It's just a factory. There are six-foot fences around it, which is much more consistent with what we would expect for a normal industrial complex in China. Um, and the only reason we know that there's something wrong with this facility is because we interviewed somebody, a former detainee, who actually was forced to work there. Um, so we'll pick up on this more in the story, more in future events, but uh, we know this particular individual was in several different detention facilities with quite harsh conditions and as a reward for good behavior and learning was graduated to forced labor. Um, so she, sorry, this individual was um, forced to work here and I would say coerced because this detainee was told that if misbehavior occurred, the detainee would be sent back to much harsher, to these harsher facilities, right? So that's a form of coercion. And was paid a little bit for some of the work, but not for the rest of the work. We also know that there was a mixed, a mixed population in the facility. So um, both detainees and just normal folks from nearby villages. And I think that really points out how complex the situation is likely to be as we try to untangle conditions of forced labor there. And actually, I just want to go back to one other thing. I think something is really interesting. The CCTV, this Chinese television episode about the last, the last uh, facility I spoke about, to me is really chilling in the sense that forced labor in some circumstances rises to the level of an international crime that's prosecutable at the International Criminal Court. And to have a television segment about basically what was probably the use of forced labor and to think that that is totally okay, it boggles my mind, right? It really shows um, some mental summer, somersaults you'd have to go through to get to that point. Quickly want to flag areas for further research that we're considering, and then we're going to get to the panel, and the panel is going to be great, so thank you for your patience. Um, one of the issues we're really interested in is the roles and responsibilities of international companies in surveillance in Xinjiang. That's obviously something a lot of us are thinking about, both in terms of what they're selling and doing research on and what they're buying uh, from a human rights perspective. Then obviously this issue around forced labor. How many people are involved in forced labor who are in these detention facilities? And is that being used to pay basically for this prison, this prison state? Um, and how does that connect to international supply chains? Right? We know a little bit. We know China's largest tomato processing facility is in Xinjiang. We know what claims to be the world's largest yarn factory is there. Um, apparels produced there, tea packaging, mobile phone, uh, mobile phone assembly, et cetera. But we don't really know how that connects with the outside world, except that obviously all of us are wearing many things made somewhere in China. The last issue, and I know we're going to talk about this on today's panel, is really these international campaigns of, by the Chinese Communist Party of Chinese diaspora, particularly Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim minorities, who are living in democracies but being harassed and threatened if they speak out about either their own experiences or those of their families and friends. Um, and I think that that is, you know, this is occurring in democracies, this occurred here in Washington, D.C. So I don't want to steal the thunder of my panelists, but I think it's another really important issue to focus on. Um, and on that note, we are going to turn to the panel now, um, and we're going to have to do a little rearrangement on stage, so please just wait for a moment while we put a few more chairs up here, and I'll ask the panelists to come up in a moment. <coughs> so on today's panel, we have 
really some individuals with some incredible expertise on the situation in Xinjiang that have in many cases have been working on these issues for years. Um, to my right, we have Emily Rahala. Am I butchering your last name? It's pretty good. Okay, great. She's a Washington Post staff writer, and she was <coughs> based in China for five years and Hong Kong for two years before that, and just came back to the States in 2018. To her right, we have Sophie Richardson, who has been working on issues, human rights issues in China for Human Rights Watch for years, and has been doing some terrific work on technology in particular, along with one of her colleagues. To her right, Nuri Turkal has joined us from, he's an attorney and the board chair of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. He lives here in the Washington DC area. Some of you may know him. He'll be talking about some of the experiences of the diaspora. And last, we have an empty chair because our logistical challenges today were significant. Um, I believe our last panelist might be just coming in. It's Sarah Cook. She's made it. Yes, she's coming in from Freedom House. Um, and she's one of, their, one of their East Asia experts, but we'll really be talking about their work on technology and how it's sort of spreading from Xinjiang into other areas. So on that note, Emily, I mean, your time in mainland China actually coincides almost exactly with the start of this whole re-education re -education process. Um, so you kind of saw this coming, I think. Can, can you just tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm a reporter for the Washington Post, and I was um, in, in China uh, as a correspondent and reported uh, from across the country, including from Xinjiang, uh, several times. So the perspective I can share is, is not one of you know, high-level great power competition, but of, of what it's like to report on the ground and how the factors on the ground there are really um, shaping how the story is told in ways that I think are really significant. And you're exactly right. Um, the way this story is talked about right now, um, because it is so urgent, can make it seem like it, it popped out of nowhere. And of course, the opposite is true. And, and that matters in terms of understanding how we got here and also what is going to happen next. This is not a discrete event. This is not just, in particular, one segment of the population, though one segment is suffering <coughs> particularly acutely. And I think that understanding is critical. I'll just share a few um, snapshots in time to give you a sense. Um, um, as early as um, what's been happening in Xinjiang has been a slow progress over, I mean, decades. But um, I was first um, reporting there as a correspondent in 2014. Um, at that time, it was already, um, it was lower tech, but all of the sort of older school methods of surveillance and the intrusion of, um, the authorities into the home and cultural and family level was already there. And, and that matters because it, it shows that it's, it is about the tech in many ways that are important, but that the process has been ongoing. Um, so in 2014, I was trying to write a, what I thought would be quite a, a fun profile of a Uyghur pop star, um, flew, flew to his hometown outside of Hotan, and ended up in you know, a pretty terrifying car chase um, trying to simply do this story. Um, by that time already, um, you know, uh, local authorities were felt completely free to enter people's homes, to shape um, their religious practice, to um, provide guidelines on how, how people should worship. Um, and so we really see that the, I really saw firsthand the kernels of, of this campaign against a culture. Um, and it's since been enhanced, of course, by surveillance. Um, uh, was on the ground um, again in 2016, um, went out to do a story in um, Kashgar, where Nuri's from, and 
went, pitched, pitched a big story to my editors, and by that time, um, when I was on the ground reporting, found that it was, the surveillance was so intense and the number of people on our trail was so many that I didn't feel like I could safely interview a single person. Um, and that was years ago, you know? Like, and I think it's important to remember that because it has affected the intensification of that surveillance. It's not about the journalists, but it's about how this story has been understood. This is a story that's being told with satellite images and with state media propaganda photos because that's all we have. And it's great that we have that. But if we ask why has this gotten, gone on so long and why has this gone so far, it's because um, the Chinese Communist Party has very effectively um, managed this message and in stopping reporting on, at, a, at a human level, you know, been able to further dehumanize this campaign of dehumanization. Thanks, Emily, and we'll come back to Emily in a few minutes. Sure. Sophie, you just did this <laughs> big report on technology, you and your, co your colleague Maya. On, my understanding is you somehow, I don't know how, got hold of an app that a lot of police officers have on their phones and like recreated it or dismantled it. So what'd you find out? And what are the questions that remain for you, the burning questions? There's so much for us to talk about this afternoon, but first of all, I'd like to echo Emily's thanks. It's great to be here, and it's great to be having a conversation like this in a forum like this, because uh, I think it reaches a different uh, and important set of people. Um, we, you know, we've written for 25 years about issues like ethnic discrimination and restrictions on religious freedom, about um, enforced disappearances in the wake of the 2009 protests. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've written a lot more about abuses of surveillance technology across China, not just in Xinjiang. But uh, in the course of writing about uh, predictive policing platforms, we started seeing references to something called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is not a name that just comes tripping off the tongue. And we sort of thought, huh, we don't really know what that is, but we'll sort of keep an eye on it. And then over the course of the year, uh, a couple of interviewees, people who had been detained, mentioned to us that when they had been questioned by authorities that, those, that the police had been recording that information on an app. And independently, they all described something that looked fairly familiar. Um, police WeChat accounts included references to the IJOP, which, you know, again, made us think, clearly this is a tool that's being commonly used. And then, sometimes life is strange, we found a copy of this app uh, online, publicly available. So we downloaded it. And we sort of spent a month or two thinking, what do we want to do with this? We weren't quite sure whether we actually wanted to try to log onto it, which we ultimately decided was not such a great idea. So we worked with a group that's based in Berlin to reverse engineer it. What we decided we wanted to know was what was the thinking that had gone into that app? What was it that police wanted to know? And what information prompted them to detain Sarah instead of Nuri? Mm -hmm. what, you know, what was it that people had to have done? And by reverse engineering the app, we were able to show that, first of all, this, this thing, the IJOP, is really sort of the central brain of multiple surveillance streams across Xinjiang. It, it hoovers up information from CCTV feeds, from uses of your ID. Uh, all of these different uh, streams of information come together. And what the IJOP does is essentially aggregates all of this data. It flags behavior that's considered suspicious and it prompts officers uh, or other officials to go out and investigate that behavior. Mm -hmm. Arguably, the most important aspect of this was that the vast majority of the behavior 
that was coded into this app is legal. It's legal. It was not about gathering you know, information about how many parking tickets you have or you know, whether somebody's actually committed a crime. It was things like, this is mind-boggling, whether you had suddenly started to go out the back door of your house instead of the front door of your house. Not a crime, last time I checked under Chinese law. Um, it tracks uh, whether you had been putting gas in a car that you do not own. Also not a crime under Chinese law. If you turned your phone off for whatever the system deemed an unusually long period of time, that too was suspicious. So all of these different kinds of behaviors, there were 36 behavior types, along with the fact of having any one of about 50 different apps on your phone, <coughs> that alone could trigger having officials turn up on your doorstep and detain you. And ultimately, we did find cases uh, of people we had interviewed who had been in political education centers whose behavior had been logged in that way. Uh, you know, so we really were able to connect sort of the hard coding, the thinking behind the app, the application of it, and then the outcome. Thanks, Sophie. We'll, we'll come back to some more Q&A about that. I think one thing Sophie said reminded me, I should have said this earlier, just to be very clear, there's a normal prison system in Xinjiang too, right? But the, when we talk about these detention facilities and give these numbers, those are people who are being put there with like no charges, no due process, right? There's no evidence they've done anything wrong other than maybe change their gas purchasing habits. And so I think it's just really important to bear in mind that that's what we're talking about. This is not like a normal prison population that's had some kind of charges brought against them, even if the legal system in China is not what it could be. Um, I think another part about your report, Sophie, I found really I mean, interesting is, I think you talked about how like the police officers are exhausted, actually, because they're having to chase all these leads, and, and they themselves are actually at a bit of risk if they don't do it, is my understanding. Yeah, it's sort of a peculiar experience to read some of these WeChat accounts, because, you know, it, it's not a population for one who innately has a certain amount of sympathy, but, you know, reading, first of all, about, you know, the very labor-intensive process of entering all of this data, but also, you know, and, and chasing up endless leads, you know, and being obliged to follow through on what the technology dictated police had to go do. But it was also interesting to read some of their complaints about sort of the automation or the automation, I'm getting a word wrong here. Um, automating, thank you. Yeah. Uh, automating policing, right? That, that, you know, there were some interesting complaints that police said, look, we've been trained to actually you know, know what crime is and how to investigate, and now we're irrelevant. We're just doing what the machinery tells us to do. And, you know, I think that's somewhere in that there's an interesting conversation about, you know, what it means for a police force to really reduce them to being the executors of what technology tells them to do where there's no, you know, there's no judgment, there's no humanity, there's no, you know, sense of proportion. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sarah, since we have you, I'm so glad you're here. Um, Sarah was giving another talk at the NED, as I recall. Um, so you've obviously, I think you and Sophie have some overlapping expertise, but I'm really hoping you can talk more about the work that Freedom House has been doing in terms of tracking how some of the technology in Xinjiang is sp spreading to other parts of China or interacting with other parts of China and then also abroad. What does that picture look like? Um, so, well, first of all, I'm really glad I was able to make it here in time for... Um, to, to hear parts of the panel, so I'm not walking in with no sense of the previous conversation. I think what's really interesting is that some of the features that Sophie mentioned with regards to even just this particular app in Xinjiang, 
You see that coming up in other examples, either in China or elsewhere. Um, one is this idea of lots of different streams of information um, being, um, being collected, uh, maybe not on this scale of minutia, but that there's these databases, like these so-called safe city or smart city projects, um, that basically will collect um, you know, the CCTV footage and then you know, maybe use some kind of facial recognition technology to track someone's age or ethnicity and then draw from a police criminal database to see if this person has you know, drug possession records or something like that. Um, so that's one. The other is the shoddy data security. Um, and so that's, you know, the flip side of it is that uh, it's actually enabled us to, to get, and, and just really in the last year, I think there have been like five big examples of this book. Some of them related to Xinjiang, some related to other parts of China, like there was this Beijing residential community that had one of these smart, smart city um, setups of like 200 residents, and the data was like really shoddily um, secured, and so someone got a database and were able to analyze it, and then you really get to learn and see or how all these different pieces of the puzzle come together. And some that actually extend outside of China. So just to give an example, um, and this is relates more to some of the ways, I think when you get to outside of China, there's two aspects of it. One is the ways in which the Chinese government uh, can monitor uh, people outside of China, like critics or ethnic minorities that it might be interested in. The other is kind of the export of these technologies and know-how to other countries. So the first kind, I'll just give one example, and then I'll turn to the other aspect, which, which was the um, focus of some other research we did. WeChat is a really, really, is like the app in China. And it's, a, it's kind of an instant messaging app, and, and more and more people in the diaspora, but also English speakers are using it. You have Australian officials, people, uh, uh, government officials actually outside of China in some cases using it to communicate with their Chinese uh, constituents. And so like just a few weeks ago, there was this big data leak of um, WeChat data that um, had like three point something billion messages within a particular day that was being automatically checked for certain keyword triggers like Tibet or Xi Jinping or 1989 and they were being picked up for like some kind of review. And several million of those were from outside of China and were English language ones from outside of China. And so you have again this example of this would be maybe be kind of, it's not that they were necessarily censored, we know other examples of WeChat conversations being censored, but this is just a Chinese tech company basically um, clearly on a mass scale monitoring its users outside of China based on the content that they're, they're the conversations they're having. Um, and one keyword trigger was enough against this big massive data collection was able to trigger like collection of the whole conversation. Now, in terms of this element of kind of exporting censorship, Freedom House produces a, an annual um, assessment of internet freedom around the world, uh, where the last issue published at the end of 2018 uh, looked at 65 countries. So we assess the various aspects of internet freedom in 65 countries around the world. And what we found in 2018 was that for the eighth year in a row, internet freedom around the world had declined. And also for several years in a row, not surprisingly, perhaps uh, the Chinese <coughs> government was the worst abuser of internet freedom. But one of the newer findings, and this isn't, again, kind of like what Emily was saying, is it coming out of the blue? But is the degree to which the Chinese government is being more proactive now at trying to really export its model elsewhere? And um, that you know, takes two, two forms, two specific examples. One uh, is training officials from other countries. So we found that out of the 65 countries, 36 countries had sent some kind of government or media official to China for some kind of, you know, there are these euphemisms, you know, internet management, new media management, 
Um, a lot of it, some of it, it's like also the ways in which to kind of mon use big data to monitor public opinion so that then it's maybe more finding ways to manipulate it. Um, and then the other was actually the, the actual physical export of supplying uh, technologies using uh, advanced uh, artificial intelligence or facial recognition uh, to other governments. And so we found that 18 of the 65 countries, um, you know, had had received, had bought that kind of technology from China. Now that's not comprehensive because, for example, just in the last few weeks, news came out that now Serbia and Tajikistan, for example, have that kind of technology and they just happen to not be one of the 65. I'll just add on one more point. If you actually look at those countries and the way they rate in terms of their level of freedom, of internet freedom. Um, I was looking at how that compared uh, on the Freedom on the Net report. The actual largest proportion of those countries are ones that are made partly free. So it's not just the autocrats uh, that are buying this technology um, or, or trying to learn it. So um, if you look at, for example, at the, the 18 or so, uh, 11 of them were actually partly countries that are partly free on their internet freedom. Um, only five of them were not free, and then there were two free countries too. So I think you see that both in terms of that this isn't just a, a problem and an issue in countries that are already authoritarian, but, but also in countries that where internet freedom, there's, there's a real battle going on perhaps, and this could potentially tilt the balance. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. I think um, the work you all have been doing on this sort of export has been obviously really important for kind of helping us understand the state of play, um, and will continue to be so. I'm waiting for your next report. Um, I think it also really highlights just something we need to think about as smart cities roll out around the world, including here, right? Like the temptation to use that data, right? It's even if you, I can imagine as a government, you have good intentions at the beginning, but then it's there. Seems quite irresistible to me. Um, and really an area where we need to think more about safeguards. Um, turning to a slightly different topic, um, Nuri, I mean, you've been here in Washington for a long time, but you're in touch with a lot of the Uyghur diaspora. You work with them legal, on legal issues as well. Um, and I think, you know, one issue is just, it's starting to get more attention, but really is this harassment of Uyghurs and other Tur Turkic Muslim minorities living abroad when they're living in democracies, whether it's sort of just individuals or on universities. So Emily will also talk about this, but can you just talk to us about some people's experiences, maybe your own? First of all, thank you very much for organizing this uh, important discussion. Um, there are about 1,500 to 5,000 uh, Uyghurs living in the United States, mainly in Texas, uh, here in Washington, D.C. area, and California. And um, when you leave China, uh, including my own experience, you thought that you were over with that kind of repressive policies. But the Chinese government's uh, intimidation and surveillance is still with us today, preventing us from enjoying the constitutional rights, particularly speech-free speech in this country. Um, my organization, UHRP, is, is currently uh, working on a report uh, focusing on this particular issue. Uh, the, the draft report that we have concludes the Chinese government's implementing systematic, cruel, ambitious, well-resourced, uh, well relentless, multi-year, data-intensive, persistent policies uh, to inflict uh, pain and suffering on Uyghurs abroad. Uh, the, when I mention Uyghurs uh, here in the United States, the same method uh, have been applied to the others around the globe. Um, the campaigns of harassment and surveillance, uh, surveillance coercion of Uyghurs uh, is an assault on our freedom uh, in this country, and it's also a threat to our sovereignty. 
there's a criminal uh, ramification for those Chinese agents uh, conducting this kind of illegal behaviors and acts on our soil. There are four types of activities that they have been actively engaging in uh, to surveil and intimidate Uyghur population. One of them is just a regular harassment, uh, either directly approaching them, uh, approaching the Uyghurs uh, through uh, text messages, uh, uh, WeChat messages, uh, emails, uh, even in some instance phone calls, threatening that they need to stay quiet and they're not uh, supposed to talk about what's happening to them, their families, that includes the uh, loved ones disappeared into those camps. So that's one of the most effective uh, methods that they have been used. As a result, uh, many Uyghurs have not been able to come out and share their stories. Um, I can assure you, uh, I can say this with certainty, that uh, it's, it will be hard to find a Uyghur uh, around the world, uh, especially in the uh, free societies that you won't find a family that have not been affected by the ongoing uh, crisis. So with that kind of large numbers being affected, we still hear, uh, we still don't hear enough because of that precise reason uh, that I described. And also the second type of method that they've been using is recruiting informants. Uh, they're forcing uh, uh, Uyghur individuals uh, around the globe. Uh, we have some first-hand information uh, shared by uh, specific individuals that they approach, uh, forcing them to uh, become informant uh, uh, and, and commit uh, act of espionage, uh, monitoring uh, certain individuals and reporting uh, certain political activities. The third type is the infiltration and in Uyghur organizations. In 2006, uh, Radio Free Asia reported a Uyghur American individual who were in, struggling to uh, reunite his, with his family was approached by a Chinese police with the condition that uh, he will be able to see his wife and children if he promised to uh, become an informant and also run for office in the UAA, Uyghur American Association. This was reported in Radio Free Asia. Uh, because of his refusal, uh, to this day he has not been able to reunite with his family. Actually, that refusal cost him his marriage. Uh, the last one is the most disturbing one, that is uh, misinformation, disinformation, and ad hoc attack, ad hominem attack campaign that has been waged. Uh, Uyghur leaders uh, and outspoken individuals also dealing with a kind of misinformation campaign uh, that looked like originated from uh, Chinese, uh, which is very much inconsistent uh, effort uh, or pattern of foreign influence and interference campaign in democratic politics that we have seen here at home and in Europe. I personally have not seen a convincing uh, and direct evidence of Chinese government's actions uh, stimulating these problems, but I privately heard from several uh, disinterested uh, observers that what is happening in diaspora com communities follow a classic pattern of foreign interference. Of course, they're normal, uh, these kind of uh, conversations, especially focusing on expression of political opinion is normal, but too often that turn into character assassination and false controversies. Uh, I've personally been the subject to one of those controversies, uh, uh, professionally made 30-second soundbite, uh, published after I've done something publicly, uh, seemed to be pretty significant, to discredit me and target my uh, personal and professional integrity. Um, and diaspora community also uh, suffer constant distractions from campaigns to save the Uyghur people from the ongoing utter destruction 
as we cope with ad hominem attacks uh, in the, on the individuals and their political positions. Uh, that includes blame for lack of progress uh, in stimulating inadequate international response, and petty criticism, a lot of promotion uh, on social media. There are very active troll uh, activities in uh, Twitter, uh, on Twitter and Facebook, uh, targeting uh, particularly established Uyghur activists uh, as we speak today. And some of these are unavoidable in a political community, but I'm also concerned that these are classic sign of foreign interference and influence campaigns that we've been reading uh, on uh, major newspapers. To address this, the United States government needs to step up and use uh, the legal tools at its disposal. Uh, one of the things that we always talk about, as mentioned by Congressman, is the, uh, the legislative uh, actions must be completed before the summer uh, recess, hopefully. That, could, that in of itself will address some of these concerns because the, the, um, the uh, UHRP Act, uh, the Rubio Smith Bill, specifically addresses these issues. Um, and also, um, the FBI should set up a hotline uh, to allow Uyghur individuals in the United States to call and share their stories anonymously, even in some instances. Uh, despite their, uh, the FBI should also make it clear that anyone, uh, despite, uh, despite, uh, regardless of their citizenship and immigration status, should uh, come forward and share their stories. And also the technology companies should uh, step up the content moderating uh, efforts um, to uh, eliminate hate speech and uh, unnecessary distractions. I think as a society we're dealing with uh, similar issues, but um, uh, the, the focusing on, on the Uyghur work uh, requires urgent uh, focus and attention. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nuri. Um, and I, I, you know, one thing I should have said is one way in which the Uyghur situation doesn't come out of nowhere is that also Tibet, obviously, and Tibetan activists face many of the same challenges, right? And sort of they're now applying a playbook that's also getting modernized with social media and so forth, but applying it to a new population that's very vulnerable, obviously. Right. Um, I also wonder, it's just something I've been wondering about, I found some reporting on malware that was targeting Uyghurs from like 2013, but I kind of have to assume there's malware and spyware and things being used, and I haven't seen much about that, so maybe that's a topic for further conversation. Sure. Emily, you have been doing some reporting recently that actually touches on some related issues to what Nuri was just talking about. Can you tell that story? I found it pretty mesmerizing. Sure. Um, so one of the, the challenges of telling this story is um, A, that it's really complex, and B, that um, it's sort of pulls in a mix of sort of classic, coercion and intimidation and in a way that's enhanced by technology. Um, the story that I think you're referencing is, is a piece I did with a colleague who's based in Beijing about a what should have been just a simple talk on a university campus in Canada. And uh, we found out from the speaker was a Uyghur woman who was uh, scheduled to deliver a presentation um, on the camps before an audience like this. Very normal for a university setting for a variety of speakers to come in. And um, what we obtained was a WeChat conversation where a group of um, the um, tiny student groups on campus had organized and coordinated, per their own account in this WeChat group, um, coordinated with the local embassy and consulate in Canada to um, surveil, effectively record the speech, and you know, presumably for use in, in future intimidation or coercion of, of either people in attendance or the speaker herself. Um, 
I want to should go without saying, but I'll say it no matter what. The vast majority of Chinese students uh, in the United States and Canada and elsewhere have absolutely nothing to do with this. But it was a really clear and rare example of of getting to see on the inside, um, you know, a, a sort of coordinated effort to um, shut down this event, and also to capture. Um, both not just who was speaking, but who was in the audience. And it, it raises complex issues, right? I was a university student. One of those things you can do in university is shout down speakers. That's protected speech. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we presumably some of us have been there in our student days. But what, is the, what are the rights of um, Uyghurs in the United States or in Canada or of Chinese students in the United States or Canada to go to an event and participate without fear of of, of uh, surveillance, coercion, um, and, and how do institutions respond to that? Universities have so far responded by being like, you know, that's not a response. Um, and, and broadly, there was a, a theme that I'd also like to pull out of this conversation is, you know, how has this gone on for so long? Um, why does this keep happening? Where is it going? I mean, it's gone on for so long because there's been almost no cost um, to the players involved in this campaign. <laughs> and, in, until there are in, in these specific cases. Um, I think it will continue. Um, I'll add one more story, which I will discuss quite gingerly, but um, in terms of this story being told, um, I've been working for several months with a, a family, a Uyghur family who's in the United States right now, about whether they want to tell their story. And um, without getting into any details for safety reasons, I mean, it's the logistics of trying to safely share someone's personal experience as it relates to what's happening right now are nearly impossible. Um, it touches on everything that Nuri has mentioned, um, you know, conducting the interview. Um, if you're not a Uyghur speaker, who do you hire to translate the interview? Um, people were terrified. We had, you know, a weeks long debate over translators and who would be safe. And this is before we're even talking about being named or not being named or family members that are still in China. And so the level of uh, terror is is extremely pronounced and um, worth considering in its own right. Yeah, and I think it's been one thing that's been really surprising to me as CSIS has started to engage in the space more, which everyone on the panel I'm sure was well aware of, but how few people, first of all, are getting out of Xinjiang, and especially Uyghurs, actually. So it's easier to find people who are, say, Kazakh and who have joint citizenship, for example. Their government has helped pull them out. Um, so so hard to find people that actually can give first account, first-hand accounts of what's occurred, and then they're subjected to terror. So even the few that there are are afraid to speak for completely understandable reasons. And, and one of the main activists who was um, recording and documenting the story of Kazakhs escaping the camps is now, of course, in jail. In jail, um, and so when people are, you know, the consequences are real, and and the fear is 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 well. Sophie, did you want to pick up on that? Just to, just to add one thing that I should note about um, both the IJOP and the kind of information it gathers, but also something that we noticed uh, when we published our report about the political education camps was the very clear focus of the authorities on the fact of people's relationships with people outside the country. If you had been outside the country, if you had a cousin who'd taken a vacation in Malaysia, if you had relatives someplace else, if you were calling family members here or there, um, there's a list of 26 sensitive countries. Uh, that's in our September 2018 report. But it's also a clear series of questions um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the app that we reverse engineered. And 
you know, I, I have spent a lot of time in the last year thinking about what we should have all paid a lot more attention to along the way. Um, and I think, and it's a long list in my mind, <laughs> because what's happening in Xinjiang is just sui generis. It is absolutely sui generis. And not only do we need to deal with what's happening right now, we need to make damn sure it's not going to happen to anybody else anywhere. Um, but I think one of those signal pathologies we should have paid more attention to was the incredible effort the Chinese government put into sort of roughly 2009 to about 2015 enforcing back or like literally physically repossessing, repossessing people who were trying to flee the country. You know, most governments with refugees, they're like, meh, go, we don't want you, good riddance. If China wants you back and it wants to know who you're talking to, hello, we need to pay a hell of a lot more attention to that. We really do because that's, I think, you know, when you think about sort of the standard indicators of, you know, things like violence or, you know, ethnic conflict or things like this, we need a whole new set of diagnostic <laughs> indicators, and that should be one of them. If a government is hunting people down who are trying to flee it, um, especially when it's a P5 member state, we all need to pay a lot more attention to that. That's a great point, Sophie. Thank you. I, you know, yes. Okay. I, um, <laughs> well, traditionally, the, um, the Uyghurs... Uh, even tried to stay away from the ge certain ge geographical locations, like Munich, Washington, maybe Istanbul, where there are a lot of Uyghur activities going. That even did not save some of the Uyghurs from getting into trouble with the Chinese. Um, and also, uh, not being politically active didn't help either. So everyone uh, categorically, systematically been affected uh, and been bullied. Uh, and we've seen some consequence. Uh, people who have spoken out uh, paid heavy price. Uh, five of uh, f uh, uh, some Radio Free Asia reporters uh, ignore those uh, warning, and they're paying a heavy price. Uh, to this day, I would say that Radio Free Asia reporters are the only Americans who have been punished by the Chinese uh, directly for what they do professionally. Sarah, um, just a couple of quick thoughts on, on some of what's come up here. I mean, I think one thing with regard to what's happening in Xinjiang and this question of bringing people back from abroad, I think it's the, as bad as things were and we're slowly getting, there has been this really dramatic deterioration over the last three years. And so when people, you know, Uyghurs or others, you know, Chinese making calculations about, I'm going to go study Arabic in Egypt. You know, at all, or, or something, or religion at all. That was common for years and years and years. Uyghurs would do it. And then suddenly, like, so, like you have this group of all Uyghur students who get sent back from Egypt to China. So I think the, the speed with which this shift has happened, especially with regard to international communication and travel, actually has given a lot of data to China. Like, because almost everybody, you know, there's a much wider population of people who are guilty of it, so to speak, than they had been before. I mean, I think the other thing in terms of thinking about precursors and I'd written a piece about this in the, in the, in the Jamestown China Brief, um, is this issue of this kind of re-education called transformation. And if you actually look at the language, at the tactics, and actually even at several of the key officials, whether it's Chen Chuangguo or his assistant uh, or a couple of other people at the national level, they'd actually been quite involved in camp previous campaigns, especially with regard to the meditation practice of Falun Gong that's been persecuting China for almost 20 years, and where this term of kind of transformation through re-education really started to gain um, uh, progress. And 
This is the creepy thing, to be honest, about if you look at like Chinese journals and police, they, they're learning lessons. They'll be like, these are the most effective ways and they have psycho people with psychological backgrounds. So I think in terms of also thinking about how did they manage to ramp this up so quickly, and they actually really did have a, a playbook already in place. And the last thing I thought I'd share with regards to the question of Chinese students is um, a, a former intern of mine actually is one of her projects. She had done a survey of Chinese students in America with regards to the question of surveillance. And so she, you know, she got 72 responses, but they were from 31 universities. And 58% and, um, uh, and of those people were actually aware and concerned about Chinese surveillance here in the United States. And just sorry, Sarah, those weren't Uyghurs, right? These no, are these are Chinese, Chinese students. students. Yeah. And so I think some of the things that we were talking about, whether it's about informants and, and monitoring, and actually about 80% of them reported some form of self-censoring, um, whether or not they had demonstrated an awareness of official surveillance. And it, was, uh, and it included, for example, whether they would choose to attend university events, which of their friends they would talk about their political views with, um, as well as things like what they might do online or let alone speaking publicly. Um, so I think, again, in terms of this question of how has it gotten to this point, perhaps the responsibility of, of university institutions to create hotlines you know, for, for Uyghurs certainly, and for other vulnerable populations like Tibetans or, but like just for average Chinese students, for them to know that if this happens, it's really not supposed to, and you could call anonymously and someone will look into it, as well as that in some cases, we actually know that there are Chinese diplomats who are doing this intimidation, and somebody should be really like, get kicked out <laughs> for that reason. Your presentation reminded me of something uh, quite interesting that, that we should think about. When you look at the uh, travel history that helped the Chinese to build this artificial intelligence database, there was a period um, starting 2009, 12, all the way to 15, the Chinese government actually encouraged uh, Uyghurs to go out, travel, go to Turkey, go to study in Egypt, uh, go to Central Asia, uh, Malaysia, and, and most of those countries, even including the United States, made it to the list of 20, 26 countries. So it begs the question, are they, uh, have they been preparing this, building this for a long time, encouraging people to apply for P passports and join the tourist groups to go to those troubling countries, come back with some sort of inspiration, uh, expression of their excitement, especially the ones who went to Turkey. So the museums glorifying Uyghur history, Uyghur civilization, that have been a, a problem for some Uyghurs. And also, uh, if the Chinese government has really problem with separatism or all the other Zims, where the Kazakh people fits in this? Are they trying to create another separate Kazakh state within the Chinese territories? It makes no sense. No, no, I mean, I think this is really about culture and religion at the end of the day and not being within the model that the Chinese government wants people to fit into, right? Not being in the box, the mental box. Um, I want to turn to policy because we're a policy think tank and then I want to make sure we have time for some audience questions. So. Um, there's various pending pieces of legislation, both in the Senate and the House. In terms of dealing with surveillance, I just want to go down the road quickly. What's the most important element in either of those bills that really needs to be maintained? It's a hard yeah, question. I'm going to make Sarah start. <laughs> so I can pick for a minute. Uh, OK, I'll keep it simple, but because I'm not as familiar with deals. I think whatever would put 
uh, the biggest cost on the company potentially, and like to really, sh especially ones that are engaged in human rights abuses, in terms of just sanctions of of of, but like targeted ones with regards to ones that are responsible for certain kinds of abuses, to really change the calculus. Um, and then I think the other thing would be, I think anything in terms of also uh, transparency, so that we understand more about who's doing what where, uh, is, is, generally, is generally pretty helpful and good and, and something Congress can push the administration to do. And, and be fair, that, that's a fair way of interpreting my question. In terms of dealing with these surveillance issues, what are like one or two of the most important steps Congress could take which may be in one of these bills? Um, I agree with Sarah. Uh, the, the Chinese government has not suffered any cost for what they have been doing, particularly in the last two years. So going after technology companies in particular, and certain scientists uh, in the United States, either knowingly or unknowingly helping the Chinese uh, police state, uh, in, uh, particularly in the area of uh, genetics. Uh, there have been some disturbing reports uh, that at least two uh, very well-known uh, American scholars, scientists, have been implicated uh, in this uh, questionable uh, scientific cooperation. Right, and my recollection is the articles around using genetic markers to identify different ethnic groups, including Uyghurs and Tibetans and things. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting conversation. 